Amidst all that good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to keep in mind the war has been won. 2,000 years ago, the war was won when Jesus Christ came up out of the grave. But the battles continue. The battles continue. And I want to talk to you today about America. The title of this talk is called The Second Upper Room. And I'm going to let you know it's not all good news. But keep in focus, we have won the war. But we all have a duty to do. So the second upper room. Talk about America. We do live in a blessed nation. God has preserved this nation through many physical wars. And he's blessed this nation among some of the wars we almost lost. We did lose many, many people who sacrificed their lives so that we could be here today. Now I'm going to talk about this nation, America. I want to talk about how you destroy great nations like America and other nations that have gone before us. There are two ways to destroy great nations. One is through military action, through guns, bombs, missiles, and many troops, men and women, fighting. But there's a more effective way to destroy great nations today. It is called the attack from within. You destroy the nation's morality, you destroy the nation's theology, and you reinvent their history. It is called the slow decay method. And that's what I want to talk about today, what is happening in America. It is called the war within America, not fought with guns and bombs, It is the greatest war this country has ever been in. It is for the very heart and soul of this nation. It is being fought with the next generation who are in this country, I'm sad to say, are not prepared to go to battle. So the war within America. The conflict really begins a long time ago. Before America, the conflict begins in the book of Genesis when Satan deceived himself into believing He could overthrow the absolute right of God. He could overthrow God in the sovereignty of God. That's when the battle begins. And we see that brought out in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Revelation. Satan deceiving himself into thinking he can overthrow God. And then all throughout history, Satan has continued this battle. And he's continued it on two fronts. The first one, he attempted to destroy the line leading up to Jesus Christ, and he failed. And now... His attack is on the church to distort the word we heard today in 1 Corinthians 15, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his main tactic today, to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to look at, just a brief history of spiritual warfare here. What Satan's attack has, what he's done, and God's plan. Now, I don't want you to get the idea God has more than one plan. He only has one plan. And it is a perfect plan because God is not bound by time. He knows the beginning from the end. And we see Satan's attack. Satan slays Abel. We had the first murder in history, but God's plan is perfect. God counteracts the murder by giving Adam and Eve another godly son named Seth. The name means substitute. and The Redeemer Christ will come through this line. But Satan doesn't stop there. Satan perverts most of the human race, but God's perfect plan comes into motion. God counteracts by preserving the family of one righteous man, Noah, who was a descendant of Seth. And Satan continues to attack. In order to defeat the kingdom of God, he sets out to destroy the nation of Israel. Israel is held captive by Egypt, but God's plan. God raises up Moses to lead the nation out of slavery by sending ten plagues. What a perfect plan. Satan continues. And we have the first upper room. And remember the name of this talk is the second upper room. The first upper room. Satan's attack. Satan uses Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus is beaten and crucified, dies on the cross and is buried. But God's perfect plan comes into play. On the third day, Jesus is raised from the dead. And we win the war. And then we enter the church age. Where Satan is unable to prevent the birth of Jesus Christ and the line leading up to Jesus. But now we have the church and Satan's order is now to distort 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Saul wrecks havoc on the early church, and God continues his one and only plan. God counteracts Satan's persecution of the church by converting Saul to Christianity, and Saul becomes Paul, one of the great writers of the Bible. And Satan continues, Rome begins a universal persecution of the church, but God counteracts that persecution. The greater the persecution, the more the church grows. And Satan continues, not being able to destroy the church through persecution, attacks the church from within. Satan uses the Renaissance period to move the church into secular humanism. While the church continues its rituals, they forgot the claims of God. And God's plan continues. God counteracts with the new movement known as the Reformation. God raises up men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and William Tyndall to preserve the Word of God. And he continues with great men like Henry Morse to preserve the integrity of God's Word. And then we come to absolute truth number one. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is an absolute truth. And Satan continues, the 1800s to today. We see that America is founded on biblical principles. We see it in the words in our documents that all men are created equal, that they are now by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that our founding fathers did believe in a creator, and that our rights come from God and not man. The first public schools we had taught the Bible and morals based on God's Word. That was our original public education system. But Satan continues his attack on America. America, having been founded on biblical principles, comes under attack by Satan. In 1892, we see our Supreme Court decision, this is a Christian nation. Just the opposite we hear from our government today. We our original public school system, the textbooks, and our own words and our documents all talk about the Bible, God as creator. We still see it in our Washington, D.C. monuments, God, and how this country was founded through the Bible. And we see on the walls of the Senate chamber in God we trust, which are ignored today. And then we have the attacks on the gospel coming Satan is still alive and working. We have counterfeit religions and cults. We have a different Jesus being preached. New prophets and new gods rising up all the time in America. Counterfeit gospels based on works. Eastern mysticism based on experience rather than the word of God. A new starting point called materialism. God is no longer the creator of all things. And we see in the 1800s, this country, the church was asleep. What we see happening in the 1800s is a great awakening, but not by the church. We see evolutionism, Charles Darwin becoming popular in the 1800s. We see Mormonism, Joseph Smith making great gains, inventing a new Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses inventing another Bible. Christian science no longer believing in the works of Jesus Christ. And higher criticism and New Age mysticism all taking great effect in America while the church was asleep. And then we come to the second upper room. And ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the keys for the condition America is in today. We must understand what happened in that room and what the strategy was. September 12, 1905, Approximately 100 people met in a loft over Peck's Restaurant in Lower Manhattan, New York. This was a turning point in America. In 1905, they called themselves the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. In 1910, their first major convention was held in New York. In 1917, the ninth convention attended by delegates from 40 college campuses. And then in 1921, they changed their name to the League for Industrial Democracy. That was a political play because they knew America would not accept the word socialism. So they changed the name to include democracy. And many 
became deceived. In attendance, some of the people there were in attendance, Upton Sinclair, socialist candidate for Congress. Jack London, author, member of the Socialist Party of America. John Dewey, founder of the modern American progressive education system, atheist. Clarence Darrow of the Monkey Trials. Mary Mother Jones, educator, union organizer, member of the Socialist Party of America. And then Walter Lipton, political commentator. Those are just some of the people that were in attendance. And I'll let you know right now, these people were well-funded and financed. They had all the money they could ever use. Upton Sinclair attended the meeting. In a letter to Thomas, Norman Thomas, September 25, 1951, this is what he had to say. The American people will take socialism, but they won't take the label. Running on the socialist ticket, I got 60,000 votes. And running on the slogan to end poverty in California, I got 879,000 votes. There is no use attacking it by a frontal attack. It is much better to outflank them. In other words, change the name to make it sound wonderful, and people will be deceived. They won't even investigate. Just put the name democracy in there. Save or end poverty, and they won't know the real truth behind what we're doing. John Dewey, one of the attenders of the second upper room, vice president of that organization in the 1930s, honorary president in 1941, and also assisted in writing the Humanist Manifesto. And don't forget, one of the leaders of the modern education system we have in our country. John Dewey had a wonderful strategy coming out of that meeting. It is a strategy many churches should be using because it is biblical. But most churches don't do this anymore. It's called biblical discipleship. Dewey's was not biblical discipleship. It was another form of discipleship. And in the Teacher magazine in 1933, John Dewey wrote this. And this was his goal and the goal of that meeting in 1905. There is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the groups of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, the immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural laws or moral absolutes. This is the outcome of that meeting in 1905, the second upper room. Marlon Maddow, in his book, Public Education Against America, Dewey declared that the state would be God, the public schools would be the church, and the teachers would be the prophets. Does that not describe America today, folks? The second upper room, what was the intended purpose? To carefully calculate the overthrow of the Christian worldview and replace it with the ideas of a then unknown writer by the name of Karl Marx. That is exactly what is happening in America today. It is called replacing Christianity with humanism. No longer do we have a God. Man will become the measure of all things. The strategy to infiltrate their ideas into the education system by organizing chapters in as many colleges and universities as possible. Folks, wouldn't that be wonderful if the church could do the same thing within the church and our universities? Infiltrate our university, Christian universities, with men and women who believed the word of God and did not compromise it? But yet, we have failed to do that. By 1917, they were active on 61 campuses and 12 graduate schools. That's just in 12 years they accomplished that. Conditioning through the education system. Humanism took over the teacher colleges in this country. And then those teachers go into the secular universities and start teaching the new world view of humanism. And then they filter down to the public schools. And then out of those teacher colleges come teachers trained in humanism, compromising the word of God and get into our Christian universities. 
who then filter down to the seminaries and start training our next generation of pastors. They no longer have to believe that God is the creator of all things. And then it filters into the churches. This is how it has happened in America. And it started in 1905 was the big event. The second upper room. John Storman, whose book, None Dare Call It Education, by the 1950s, fully 20% of all American school superintendents and 40% of all teacher college heads had received their degrees under John Dewey from Columbia University. They had done their work and done it very well. Harold Rugg, Ph.D. in education, wrote the book, The Great Technology, A Training Guide for Teachers for Building a New Social Order. A new public mind is to be created. How? Only by creating tens of millions of new individual minds and welling them into a new social mind. Old stereotypes must be broken and new climates of opinion formed in the neighborhood of America. It's exactly what they did. They used the public education system to create a new mindset in America. And it continues this day. Shirley McCune transcribed a lecture, lecture transcribed from her lecture at the Governor's Conference in 1989. And this is what she had to say to the governors. We no longer see the teaching of facts and information as the primary function of education. Building a new kind of people must be part of the curriculum. More and more schools are the center of the human resource development. The earlier we can intervene in the lives of people, the more effective we can be. And she got a standing ovation from the governors. UCLA professor during a lecture, 2001, Christianity is a harmful policy. Diana Chapman Walsh, president of Wellesley College, during a lecture at UCLA in 2002, religion is something we perhaps do without. Folks, this is America today. Professor Richard Flory, Biola University, and Professor Donner Miller, University of Southern California, make this statement. The idea is you need to reinvent the church to be adaptable to contemporary culture. They have been very successful. It's called the seeker-friendly church. Reinvent the church so that everybody will like it. Forget about the gospel. Forget about a creator We just want the numbers here. Ava Tushin, college student, see the human face of abortion, 2000. A 1996 Gallup poll showed that while 47% of women were pro-life when they finished high school, that number dropped to less than 24% by the time they finished college. That number today is even lower. Ben Shapiro, Harvard Law School got his undergraduate from UCLA, makes this statement. The university system is the new city of Babel. Professors hope to build an intellectual tower that reaches into the heavens to challenge God. This is America today, folks. While the rest of the world is building missionaries, we are crumbling. Humanism versus God is what's happening. This is the battle for America today. Humanism in the church, where do we see it? The emergent church, where they no longer believe the power of God and the doctrines of God. No longer believe in the fundamentals. The openness of God movement that says God doesn't know the future. The spiritual formation movement, which is based on tradition over God's word. Theistic evolution, that God used evolution in billions of years. Eastern mysticism, which is based more on feelings than the Word of God, and postmodernism, which no longer accepts the doctrines of God. This is what's making the big splash in America today. And all those movements have two things in common. They have a partial or false gospel, and they have a new starting point to God's Word. It is no longer in the beginning God created. And these movements are growing in this country. They are very popular Eastern mysticism has even gotten into many of the so-called good congregations in this country. So what is the gospel? We must make sure we not only know the gospel, but we can preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We heard it read today, and I want to reinforce it. The word gospel means good news. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, John 3.17. Let's never forget what the gospel means. It is good news. And I want to give you the four components of the gospel to make sure when we go out of here today, we will know all four of them and never forget it. The central part of the gospel is Jesus Christ. That is God's solution. It's how he acted to save us. The question is, save us from what? We must make sure we have a foundation for the gospel. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die on that cross and be raised from the dead? And for that, we see the core. We read it today. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. According to what Scriptures? If we're going to give the gospel, we have to know how to answer that question. According to what Scriptures did Christ have to die? And that takes us back to the very beginning. That in the beginning, God created. And it firmly states, his creation was perfect. There was no death before sin. The works of God are perfect. And since he is the creator, he sets the rules for how we're to live. This is why we are accountable to him. This is why we call him Lord, because he is the creator. We go to the last book, Revelation, the host of heaven are bowing down, saying, holy, holy, holy. Why? And the words are, because he is the creator. This is why we call him Lord. His creation was perfect. And then the third part of the gospel is man. We are the problem. We disobeyed God. To put it in modern terms, we committed treason. The fall. This is what separated us from God. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross. This, folks, is the foundation of the gospel. Why we die and why we need a Savior. It starts with the words, in the beginning, God created. His creation was perfect. He gave us one rule and we disobeyed it. And because of that disobedience, we are separate from God. And because of that disobedience, God had to send his one and only son Because he loved us so much, his son suffered and died a horrible death on that cross so that we could be saved. But how do we partake in this salvation? And that is the fourth part of the gospel. It is called our response. And it is not what we can do. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is not what we can do, it is what God has done for us. Folks, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world relies on what we must do to be saved, but not Christianity. It is what has already been done through Jesus Christ. The difference is called do and done. It is through God's grace that he loved us so much that he suffered his son on that cross for us. This is the gospel. God, man, Christ response. And this is what Satan is trying to distort. And what he is doing is not attacking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What he is attacking is the foundation for the gospel. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11.3. When will our churches wake up? When will our Christian professors wake up and start teaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting at the foundation? Different starting points. If you believe that God created everything in six little days, we have a starting point. Genesis 1.1. And God's creation was perfect. But then we have another starting point, that God is not the creator. It all happened by naturalistic processes. There are no gods, no supernatural forces. It is called secular humanism, and that is what is attacking the church today. And then we have a large group 
that are sitting in the middle. I call them lukewarm. They're trying to combine God's word with secular humanism. They're trying to play favorites, be friends with the world, and try and believe God's word. God used evolution in billions of years. Those are the three different starting points. But when I read the Bible, the entire Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Folks, if God can create everything in this universe supernaturally out of nothing, then I believe God can also preserve the integrity of his word and does not have to be added to it by our professors or anybody else. We can trust it for how he gave it to us. God's word is breathed. It is all God breathed. We read this, the Bible, the word day. He did not use the word millions of years. He specifically chose the word day. There are other words in Hebrew that could be used to indicate long periods of time, but God did not use any of those words. He even defined the word day by evening and morning to make sure we'd understand. He put a number with it, evening and morning. He wrote it down on the Ten Commandments. He had to write it how many times? Twice. Moses broke the first set. And then Jesus Christ, the creator himself, says this earth is young and not millions of years old. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Jesus said man and woman were on the planet from the beginning of the creation. And then God called his entire creation very good. That does not include death, decay, and disease. That includes very good, perfect. But there are pressures to conform. Pressures against this next generation to conform to the world. We're here, scientists have proven this earth is old. Folks, anybody that believes scientists have proven this earth is billions of years old does not understand the constraints of science. Every one of these dating methods is based on assumptions, and we have shown these assumptions to be false. And the formation of this world is history, folks. We were there to see it. It's all based on assumptions. And there are many scientific evidence, incidentally, that do show a very young earth. We hear, oh, Mike, the word day doesn't have to mean a day. It can mean many things else. Yes, it can mean other things. But context is important here. And the context in Genesis chapter 1 means a literal day and nothing else. Then we have things like the gap theory. Oh, we're going to put millions of years, but we're going to put it between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, and let's put in a million, millions of years of death and decay and disease. Then we have verse 2. So we have, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And they put this gap of time between those two, even though the language does not permit it. Second Peter 3, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years, the day of the Lord. And they forget that's taken out of context. That does not refer to the days of creation, refers to the end time. The Hebrew language is very poetic. We went through that in the uh, Sunday school hour. Yes, the Hebrew language is poetic, but it can also be written in narrative. And Genesis 1 is written in the Hebrew narrative, not poetry. And we have all of these tricks of the trade being used to deceive our next generation. How could Adam have named all the animals one day? There's millions and millions of creatures. The Bible never says he had to name millions. He only had to name a, probably a less than 10,000, only certain of the land-breathing creatures. If you read the Bible, he could have done it in under nine hours. The sun was not created until day four. Therefore, the first three days couldn't be literal days. But they forget to tell you, we don't need the sun for a day. The definition of a day is the rotation of the earth once on its axis. All these things being used by our professors in Christian universities and by pastors in churches to deceive our youth. Or the Genesis flood was just a local flood. If it was local, why do we find all these seashells on top of mountains all over the world? Why do we find whale fossils a third of the way up the Andes Mountains? Why do we find so many fossil graveyards around the world? That does not happen by long, slow processes. They forget to tell the real science. The deception. Organizations like BioLogos, who believe 100% in evolution and claim to be Christians. And you go to the website, and they talk about Jesus making mistakes right on their website. They have a picture of Noah's Ark looking like a houseboat with giraffe's head sticking out, saying that was the flood. It's an abomination to the Word of God, what they do on that website. But yet, they're well-funded, and they're putting out materials for Christian schools now to teach, and they're now making materials for homeschool. 
to deceive our youth. Reasons to believe that believe in progressive creationism, but God couldn't get it right at the beginning. He had to progressively create. Started off with this big bang explosion, then let it go for millions of years. It got stuck. He had to come and invent some more. Then it got stuck again. He had to come in and create some more. They believe in a, a race of soulless human beings before Adam and Eve and millions of years of death before Adam and Eve. And they called themselves Christians. The Clergy Letter Project. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Ivy League schools, all founded on biblical principles. Every one of them abandoned the Word of God. Wheaton University, so bad now the evolutionists use that on their side. Biola University, evolution. Duke University, straight evolution. Fuller Theological Seminary fell right after Charles Fuller founded it. His son destroyed it. Then Dallas Theological Seminary, I'm sorry to report, folks, is about 50% evolution and 50% holding to the Word of God. They're falling now. Even things like the World Council on Churches, which are 100% evolution, Eastern mysticism. All these have compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ and all have a different starting point. These are the pressures that are coming against our next generation. Let me talk about the Clergy Ledger Project. How many know that last weekend was deemed Evolution Sunday? Yes, last Sunday was deemed Evolution Sunday in America. Over 13,000, to be precise, 13,500 church leaders and clergy last weekend honored Charles Darwin from the pulpit. I happened to be in Minnesota at the time, and we called our Sunday Creation Sunday to honor Jesus Christ. This is what's going on in America. There's a battle going on, and there's a call to arms today. We don't need spectators. We need people who are going to stand up and preserve the word of God. Not that he needs us, but we are thankful that he can use us. As of 2013, over 13,000 American clergy of different denominations signed the Clergy Letter Project. What did it say? We, the undersigned Christian clergy from many different traditions, believe that the theory of evolution is a foundational scientific truth, one that has stood up to rigorous scrutiny and upon which much of human knowledge and achievement rest. 13,500 signed that. They even on their website had sermons that you could use in your church preaching Charles Darwin as the hero of America and evolution, a fact. We're in a war in this country, folks. And it's for the heart and soul of this nation and the next generation. 13,000 church leaders elevated Charles Darwin to be equal to or higher than God's word. Changing our foundation, changing our history, our theology, and our morality. What are they teaching? God used evolution. Let me show you what they're teaching, what this means to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got Adam and Eve. We've got billions of years. Then finally come along Adam and Eve. Then finally comes the fall, sin. Then comes Jesus and the cross. What, do I, what was happening during those geologic ages? The answer is death, decay, and disease. And all those organizations I just named are saying that God called death, decay, and disease, including cancer, very good. They have a different God than the God of the Bible. They have a different starting point and a different gospel. We look at science and age. We have many scientific evidence of a young earth. Carbon-14 found in coal and diamonds. Diamonds are supposed to be billions of years old, should contain no carbon-14, but we're finding abundance of carbon-14 in each of these, which means they really can't be that old. The carbon-14, carbon-12 ratio in the atmosphere says this earth can't be older than 30,000 years. That's the maximum it could be. Too much helium in minerals. We're finding so much helium in our granite rocks, it gives an age of the earth about 6,000 years. Spiral galaxies. This galaxy can't be that old. They wind themselves up too fast. Recession of the moon. The moon is receding from us. If you take about 1.4 billion years, folks, the moon's in contact with the earth. We're in trouble. So they can't be 4.5 billion years old. Existence of comets. Comets shouldn't be there. If this earth is old, they were all burned up a long time ago. Soft tissue and dinosaurs, yes, we're finding not only soft tissue, we're finding proteins and red blood cells still in these bones, folks. That means they can only be a few thousand years old at most, not billions. Too few supernova remnants. There's enough exploded stars in our own galaxy for an age of a galaxy of about 6,000 years. 
all these point to young earth and there's many many others that point to young earth they're all being ignored this is called science folks but when i read the scriptures let's get back there the authority of scripture all of scripture second timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for what doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That word inspiration means God breathed. All of it, starting with in the beginning, God created. We see the authority of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which is effectually worketh also in you that believe. It is the word of God, and it is all good for teaching. We see in Second Peter one twenty one the authority of Scripture. For the prophecy came not in old time, but by the will of men. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is not words made up by man, folks. This is the Word of God. The Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. This begs the question then, does God breathe error, as BioLogos would say, and all those other organizations? See, a God who breathes error is not worthy of a respect or worship. A God who breathes and communicates error has been created in our own sinful and finite image. In other words, what's happening in America today is we are creating God in our image. All these organizations are inventing false gospels, a new starting point, and deceiving many into believing it. This is the state of the battle in America. John Storman, again, his book, None Dare Call Education. Without the knowledge of their history, heritage, or values based on God's laws, which schools once imparted to many young Americans, have become a part of a new social order. That was the goal of John Dewey and his educational reformers. It happened and started in 1905 in the second upper room. And we turn back to our history, great moment in our history, D-Day, June 6, 1944. America found itself in a war, a war that at times seemed unwinnable. We were losing at the beginning of that World War II. We were losing the battles. Then there started to be some turning points. And on June 6, 1944, was the turning point for World War II. The largest invasion in all history happened that day. Thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers hit those beaches in Normandy. Five different beachheads. And I've been to those beaches. They're long beaches. Hundreds of yards long, some of those beaches. As those men came off those landing craft, they came under intense fire. Many knew they would never come home again. And many never did come home to see their families. But those brave soldiers, underneath all that firepower coming against them, continue to advance. If they'd done like the church today and just stayed there, we would have never won World War II. But yet those brave soldiers continue to advance and advance, watching their own friends drop dead beside them, arms and legs blown off, continue to advance with one goal in mind, and that was victory over evil. Because of those soldiers, ladies and gentlemen, we can sit here today in a free country still. That was our physical D-Day. What is our situation today? Today, folks, we're in a very similar situation. We seem to be in a war that is unwinnable. We are outnumbered. We are surrounded. And we're outfinanced. And what's even worse, there is dissension, compromise and surrender within the ranks of the church today. This is not a time to sit back and say, woe is us. In the United States Marine Corps, when we're surrounded, we feel we have the advantage 
because now we can charge in any direction. The United States Marine Corps were trained that if you're caught in an ambush, the worst thing you can do is retreat. We are, caught, we are taught the only hope of salvation and to stay alive is to advance and engage that enemy. We are in a similar battle today, this day. America is in its spiritual D-Day. Let me give you the first idea of what we need to do on how to take this thing back. This is the model I gave you before. This is the model that was used against us to infiltrate the education system, filter down to the churches, bring in humanism. The first thing we need to do is have discernment. We have too many of our Christian universities out there hiring people because they have great credentials. They've written many books. They forgot to ask them the question, do you stand on the authority of God's word? That doesn't seem to matter in our Christian universities anymore. We have to have discernment in who we're going to hire, who are going to be teaching our next generation. So that's the first thing we need to do is clean up our Christian universities and seminaries so they will know how to hire people based on God's word. And if we can stop it there, we can stop it in the seminaries, we can stop this compromise in the churches and to the next generation. That's the first thing we need to do is have biblical discernment. Stop going after what the world thinks is great credentials because the best credentials come from God's word and knowing God's word. We've got to start there. We've got to make sure we have the home prepared. Parents, we need to know what's going on in this battle. We have to have an awareness. We have to get trained. 2 Timothy 2.15, we need to stand on the word of God, study to show ourselves approved, rightfully handling or dividing the word of God. The family, we need to have fathers start taking charge of the family in spiritual matters, not giving it away. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way they should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. We need to have training starting in the home. The number one teacher in a child's life is not the public schools. It is not the Christian school. It is not the church. It is the home. The parents are the number one teachers in a child's life. We need to take back our Christian heritage and stop giving it away to the world. Our youth need to be trained for the battlefield. They are in a battle. They don't even know it yet because they're not trained, haven't been taught about the battle. The battlefield comes from the education system. The media and their own peers are all fighting against them. How could you ever believe that God created everything in six little days? That's a stupid idea. You don't even understand anything about science. That's what they're being told. They're being belittled in the school systems. So how are we going to do this? We need to build an army of Christian educators. The same thing John Dewey did, we can also do. It is called biblical discipleship. Our goal now is to raise up thousands in this country who are able to start teaching, starting with the words, in the beginning, God created without compromise. Christian educators, we need Sunday school teachers who can teach us. We don't have many Sunday school teachers that can even teach creation. Half of them are causing more problems because they've compromised, don't know how to answer the questions. It's one thing to know the information, but you've got to know how to answer the questions. Or somebody in that class can take over the class. Christian school teachers need to do this. Just two days ago at Answers in Genesis, I got to be in front of 130 school teachers from 14 different states and teach them how to build critical thinkers. And I get to do a lot of teachers. Up in Minnesota, I got to be in front of a whole group of teachers. I have a whole training course now on how to teach based on what the Bible teaches. How to measure your success as a teacher. We're not taught that in the, Christian, in the public school systems. We're not taught that in the teacher colleges. We're taught something else, how to measure our success. The Bible's very clear. Now, parents, youth leaders, especially youth leaders, and Christian teachers in public schools, we can do this. If we're really serious, we can make a difference. But first of all, we have to be serious about what we want to do. We have three training courses now. One's called Basic Creation Training. This is a whole day class, 8.30 to 5.30. The good news is it's free to the church. We charge by individual student. What do we charge? $45 for a full day of training. You get a 100-page manual with all the PowerPoint slides in an end text. 
We feed you lunch and snacks and it's certified for a continuing education unit. We're serious about this. We're tired of watching 70% of our youth leave the church. We need people out there who can teach. That's a one-day course. We come to you to teach this. We have a whole course on teacher training to make how to make training life-changing. It's not about head knowledge. It's life change. That's Christian education. Then we have another whole course called Advanced Creation Apologetics. This is the next step in Christian evangelism. How to talk to any Ph.D. scientist and not have to know anything about the science and be able to bring down those strongholds. We train you on logical fallacies, presuppositional apologetics. And again, all these courses, we come to you. Cost the church nothing. What's our next step in our ministry? The next step is this. We need to get our youth leaders trained. They're killing us in this country. They're destroying our youth, most of them. If we can train a youth leader how to teach on creation, how to teach on abortion, which most of them don't know, how to teach on the sanctity of human life and stem cells, and even the sanctity of marriage, they can affect many, many themselves in their church. We need to get our youth leaders trained. We're looking at a four-day teacher training class where we can bring you in, and in four days, you're ready to go out and start teaching in Sunday schools and, and home schools and other organizations. We can get you ready in four days. Training for international teachers and pastors. My, my idea is I've been asked to go international. I will not do international training unless they allow me to stay at least a week or two weeks to train the people there how to teach. I'm not interested in going over and doing one-hour lectures. I'm interested in training them how to teach so I don't have to come back. That is called biblical discipleship. I'm now scheduled to go to South Africa and train a group of pastors. I was just asked the other day to go to Puerto Rico, and I said, only if I can train your people there how to teach this so I don't have to come back and elect the long plane trips. Then training students in public schools. You see, we're sending our students to the battleground unprepared. We can do this. We had a course about eight years ago where we trained high school students, Christians, who attended public schools. We trained them so well that they went to the public schools, they were changing teachers' lives. They could write their reports, keeping to the rules of science, and defeat evolution and open teachers' eyes to the truth. We can do this. It doesn't come free. It doesn't come free. We lose money on every one of our courses. We know that. Money will never be the issue if somebody cannot attend our courses. We even give scholarships away because we know homeschool educators don't make the big money, neither do teachers. We rely on the Word of God. We're doing the right thing. We will continue on. We are serious about what we're doing. So we come down to absolute truth number two. And that is this. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. All those people that are compromising God's word, trying to ban it, burn it, and outlaw it, they too will die, and God's word will remain unchanged. Now we'll finish with this. We've heard the story of David and Goliath. Philistines going against Israel. Israel had three choices what to do there. Number one, they could have been, oh, whatever happens, happens. That's called apathy. They could have wrung their hands and say, woe is us. That's called the pity party, and that's what they basically did. Or we can be like David and face our Goliath today called humanism, evolution. Many people have had to face Goliath throughout history. All of you may be facing Goliath today in some way or form. People have faced Goliath. A young boy burned so bad as a child, they said he'd never walk again. His name's Glenn Cunningham. He grew up and set the world record in the mile. Another young boy was called stupid by his teacher in school. His mother found out she was so furious she took him out of school and homeschooled him. His name is Thomas Edison. The other young man teased unmercifully in school because he was so small and tiny and skinny. 
teased by all his peers. His name is Bill Gates. Let me give you one final one, facing Goliath. I happened to coach, got to coach a young girls track team a couple summers ago. And my relay team made it to the state meet. When we got to the state, I noticed I had the four smallest girls on the track. Tiny little girls. And two of our girls couldn't make it. They were sick. So I had to put two substitutes on. I wasn't sure how fast they could run 100 meters. This was a 400-meter relay. Each girl runs 100 meters. Not, many, not much time for mistakes there. So I put our fastest girl on the second leg because if our first girl went fast enough, she could get us back in the race so we could be competitive. And the gun blew. And the first runners took off. And the first girl on our team started to hand off to our second girl. And she stepped on her heel. And our second runner went flat down onto the track, face down, and the baton dropped. At that moment, she had to face her Goliath. She could have just stayed on the ground and cried, got up and screamed and yelled, went to a pity party, but she didn't. She immediately stood up and faced that Goliath, picked up that baton, and started running again at full speed. By the time she'd handed off to the third girl, she had gained on the rest of the field. The third girl got the baton and continued to gain and handed off to our last girl. And they became state champions. People, we're facing a Goliath in this country today. And it appears to be a war that's unwinnable. But don't forget, those brave soldiers on D-Day, June 6, 1944. They sacrificed their lives for what we have today. Let's not let it go in vain. Thank you, and God bless you.